The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Appreciate you being here this morning, those of you watching live. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate you being here. We're going to continue our study of 1 John this morning. We've only got a few studies left here in 1 John, and we'll be wrapping this up. So we are looking now at chapter 5, verses 13 through 21, which constitutes the conclusion of this epistle. Now, this closing context in this letter, verses 13 through 20, lists seven things that believers know. Six of the seven is I do, the Greek word, which is a reference to absolute knowledge. Not something learned by experience, but by divine revelation. We know that symbolically in Scripture, seven is the number of fullness, perfection, completeness. So he's, he's trying to tell us here, believers, there's some things we know. And the first thing he talked about is we know that we have eternal life. We talked about this last week. I write these things to you who believe in the name. He's writing to believers... He's writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God so they'll know that they have eternal life. Now, to believe in the name means the same thing as believing in the person who bears the name. Alright? We have to understand that. To believe in the name of the Son of God means to accept the revelation of Yeshua that God has given us in Scripture. So many people believe things. They're like, oh, I just believe this. Where do you get that from? I just believe it. I don't know. We've got to believe what the Scripture said. And that that involves believing that Yeshua is fully man and fully God come to redeem this world. You can't deny the deity of Yeshua and believe in His name. Because that's who He is. Look with me at a verse in Isaiah. You know, we just got to keep talking about the deity of Christ. It's a very important subject. So, let's go to Isaiah because Isaiah tells us a little bit about it. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For Yahweh, for Yah, Yahweh, is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Now in Hebrew, it would read like this. El is my Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, Yahweh, is my strength and song. He has become my Yeshua. Okay? So Yahweh is our Yeshua, and Yeshua is Yahweh. And when we believe in the name of the Son of God, we are told that we can know, not hope, but know that we have eternal life. Believers, our salvation is secure. And just as I did nothing to earn my salvation, I don't do anything to keep it. I'm eternally secure in His love. If any part of my eternal salvation depends on my power, my ability, my commitment, my righteousness, I'm damned. Okay, because I, if I could lose my salvation, I would, and so would you. So I rejoice in the fact that I can't lose it. Look at what Paul said in Romans 8.1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So anyone who believes in Christ is in Christ. Now, he starts out therefore, or there, and this always links us back to what's gone before, and I think he's going back to the Adam-Christ contrast that we see in chapter 5, verses 12-21. through 21. Because that's where we see condemnation imposed on man. Because of his sin. But he says there's now no condemnation. And reading this in the original, the emphasis rests on the word no. There is now no condemnation. That's emphatic in the Greek. 
And the Greek word that Paul uses here for condemnation is katakrama. And katakrama is only used three times in the Scripture, all by Paul, all in Romans. The first two are in Romans 5. And katakrama is defined by Suter in his lexicon as it is the punishment following the sentence. So it's not the sentence that's pronounced, it is the punishment. And what is the punishment that Adam received? It was separation from God. It was spiritual death. This is in a passive formation in the Greek, and it's not likely to refer to the sentence, like I said, as the edict from the judge, but to the punishment. Adam's sin is imputed to all. That's condemnation. Adam sinned, he died, that death spread to all men, according to Romans 5. That's spiritual death, that's separation from God. That is what condemnation is. And we have to understand there will never be in the life of any believer, katakrama, spiritual death. There will never be separation from God. There will never be punishment for sin. There's going to be chastening, and there's going to be discipline in this life, but there will never be any separation from God because we are secure in His love. There is therefore no condemnation. None. And there cannot ever be. If you have trusted in Christ, you are in Christ. And what happened to Him happened to you. You died and were resurrected, according to Romans 6. Union with Adam, the first man, led to our condemnation, our death. And union with Yeshua, the Christ, who is the last Adam, secured our righteousness and life. We know that we have eternal life. That's security. You don't know you have eternal life because of some experience that you have. You know it because of what's been written in the Scripture. Experiences change, they fluctuate, the Scripture is always the same. Now, Paul goes from that in verse 13 to begin to talk about prayer. And he's not just jumping around here on subjects. Nothing will energize your prayers more than assurance. Okay? Equally, nothing will short-circuit your prayer more than doubts. If you, don't even, if you have doubts about the fact that you're even saved, How's that going to help your prayer life? You can't be effective in prayer, I don't think, if you don't have assurance of your salvation, if you're not confident who your Father is. And prayer is just a, an expression of the believer's trust in Yeshua and confidence before God. Let's look at these verses in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. He says, This is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request, that we have asked of Him. Now, he starts out here with and, that tells us these verses are linked to 5.13 by the conjunction chi here, which is translated and. And the presence of the conjunction suggests that the author wants to say that along with assurance of eternal life, believers also experience confidence in their relationship with God and confidence in their prayer. He says that He will hear us. Now, this translation does not do justice to what this verse is really saying. We know that God hears our prayers because we know that God's omniscient. Omni means all, and science, in its original sense, means knowing. doesn't mean that today. Okay, but in its original sense. So omniscience means all-knowing. God is all-knowing. Of course, He knows when we pray. God knows everything. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. 
He knows the real and he knows the potential. And he knows all of them at the same time. He not only knows what was and what is, he knows what will be. More than that, he knows everything that could be but is not. Don't think about that too long. So we know that God hears all our prayers because He's omniscient. He knows everything. However, in this context, to hear here is the Greek word akuo, and it carries the sense of giving heed to what is asked. That is, responding positively to the request. And this is confirmed in 5.15 where he says, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of Him. So the promise that God hears us is the assurance that God listens to us favorably and grants us the request, whatever we ask. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. Now John has already brought up this idea of having confidence in prayer and a promise of answered prayer if we are obedient to God in chapter 3, 21 and 22. Here he repeats it for emphasis. The word confidence here is the Greek word paresia, and it means outspokenness, uh, confidence, assurance, boldness. The word was used in ancient Greece for the most valued right of a citizen of a free state, and that was the right to speak their mind. Unhampered by fear or shame, this speaks of open and free access to God's presence. It's boldness. We have boldness before God. Now where it says here we have we have toward Him, it says here, that would be better translated in His presence. And this is the boldness we have in His presence. John is speaking about the confidence or boldness believers have in the presence of God. The writer of Hebrews put it this way, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua. Again, confidence here is paresia. The idea of having assurance or confidence arises directly out of what has just been said in Hebrews. It is why he starts this verse with therefore, because they were sanctified, they were perfected forever, therefore they had boldness. It's appropriate. It's right. He says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's referring to an objective right that gives us a subjective attitude of boldness. They have boldness to enter the holy places. This is a reference to God's presence. And this boldness by which we enter is by the blood of Yeshua. It's got nothing to do with our own merit. Now let me ask you something, believers. How do you feel when you go someplace you don't belong or you really don't have a right to be there? You ever been there? You ever been someplace where you really didn't belong? You snuck in or you, you did something, you know? Uh, I don't know. You're just at, at a place you don't belong there, okay? And so, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, most people, I think, would feel maybe a little intimidated, maybe a little, you know, I know I shouldn't be here, but, you know, like if it's a club for members only and you slip in or sneak in or someone sneaks you in and you're around waiting to get thrown out, you know, you don't belong there. But if you're a member... You walk in with boldness because you belong there. This is my club. I paid. You know, I belong here. And so I have confidence. I have boldness. That's what it's talking about. This is the confidence that we have in His presence. The idea would be if you go into the presence of God and you say what's on your mind. Confidence in this context refers to Christian confidence in the presence of God in prayer. 
You're going in before God boldly, praying. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If here is a third class conditional sentence, which means potential action, maybe we will, maybe we won't. Prayer is not asking for our will, but it's asking for God's will in our lives. He says in verse 15, And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of Him. Now, the second if in verse or the first if in verse 15 here, is a first-class conditional sentence. All right, it has the idea of sense. And uh, A.T. Robertson says of this verse here, he says, it's a first-class condition with aeon and the indicative, which is assumed to be true from the author's perspective or his literary purposes. He says, this is an unusual conditional sentence. So, since we know that he hears us, we know, he hears us, is a perfect active indicative translated as a present, which is parallel to verse 14. It is the believer's assurance that the Father hears and the Father responds to His children. We know occurs twice in this verse. It indicates the assurance that believers have of answered prayer. Now, in this verse, He hears us literally means He answers us. And... We have the request, literally means we get what we ask for. So these verses are saying, He answers us and we get what we ask for. So what do you think about that? Do you find this to be true in your life? Whatever I ask God for, I get it. Every time, not no fail, right? I mean, do any of you find this true in your life? Uh-huh. What's wrong? That's what the verses say. I mean, literally, that's what they're teaching. We get get what we ask for. He answers our prayers. And I think, you know, in our experiences, we've realized that we don't always get what we ask for. Maybe, Maybe we seldom get what we ask for. Well, the promise seems to be very different than sometimes our experience. I mean, it seems to promise unlimited answer to prayer. I mean, wouldn't you love that? Whatever you ask, you're just getting stuff left and right. Well, this is where a comparison of other relevant texts helps us bring some theological balance, okay, into the perspective. Because, you know, people jump on some of these verses like this. See, I can get whatever I want in prayer. Well, how's it working out for you, you know? Well, see, earlier John said this. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments, and do what's pleasing to Him. So here John says we receive whatever we ask because two things. We keep His commandments and we do what's pleasing. So we see here there's two requirements for answered prayer. And in our text, he says, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So here it's asking according to His will. So now we've got three different conditions. We've got to keep His commandments. We've got to do what pleases Him, and we've got to ask it in accordance to His will. Now, those verses that seem like promises all of a sudden are a little more difficult now. Uh, first of all, let's look at the first one. We keep His commandments. In John 15, 10, He says, If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love, just as I have kept My Father's commandment, and abide in His love. If you keep My commandments. This is a third class conditional sentence, which means potential action. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. The word keep here is from the Greek word terao. It means to guard, to observe. 
This conveys the idea that you take the commandments of Christ very seriously. You hold them to be precious. You guard them. You protect them. Yeshua had stressed this over and over in the fourth Gospel. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That seems clear enough, doesn't it? He says this in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. So Yeshua inseparably joins love and commandment keeping. Now you'll hear people all the time say, oh, I love the Lord. And you'll be like, hmm, really? It's not what the Bible says. Because, you know, when they say they love the Lord, it means they have some feeling, they have some... But if they're not living in obedience, obedience, love is demonstrated by our obedience, not some kind of feeling. So if you really love Christ, you will obey His commandments. Yeshua summed up when He was asked all the law and the commandments in Matthew 22, uh, verse 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question to test Him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? All right, the Jews had 613 commandments. He said, which is the great one? And they asked us because they really wanted to know because sometimes the commandments seem contradictory and they wanted to know which commandment we could put first. Like, you know, if you saw your neighbor's ox fall in a ditch, you were to help him. But what if he fell in a ditch on the Sabbath? Do you keep the Sabbath and not work or do you love your neighbor and help him get his ox out? Which do you do? So they categorized them in, in, in order of priority. So he's saying, which is the great one here? What do we do? And he says this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the first one, okay? You love God with everything in you. This is the great and first commandment. The second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says this, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Take all the 613 commandments and sum it all to this. Love God, love your neighbor. Boom, simple, right? That's a lot easier than 613, isn't it? And and those are both so simple, aren't they? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So the first requirement for answered prayer is that we keep His commandments. And in the same verse, He gives us another commandment and we do what pleases Him. Now, I think in our study of 1 John, we could sum up doing what pleases Him as abiding in Christ. This whole thing's been about abiding, having fellowship, being in intimate relationship with the Lord. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So you could equate abiding in Christ with loving Christ. They're similar. You need to walk like Him. In other words, if you say you're abiding, you should be living like Christ. Well, that might sound not all that difficult until we throw this verse in here. John 8.29 And He who sent me is with me, and He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So, if we are abiding in Him, we should be able to say, I always do what pleases God. Right? It's kind of sobering to look at our lives and see how much we do that just to please ourselves. Not to please anybody else. And maybe that's why our prayers aren't being answered, okay? The Lord abiding in Him was all about living for the Lord. Doing what pleases Him. So the first requirement is we keep His commandments. We don't have such a good time doing that 
often. We do what pleases Him. In our text this morning, gives us another requirement, and it says that we do it according to His will. Now, when the Bible talks about God's will, it can be referring to one of two things. God's sovereign will or providence, His predetermined plan for everything that happens in the universe, or His moral will, which is revealed in the Bible, which tells us how to live. Look at, how, look at will in these two different verses here. Uh, Romans 9.19 You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Is that moral will or sovereign will? Okay. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Is that sovereign or moral? Good, good job, class. We can, you can see very clearly the term will doesn't mean the same thing in both these passages. Romans 9 uses will to speak of God's secret will of decree. His sovereign will. 1 Thessalonians 4 uses will to speak of God's revealed will of precept. His moral will. Now as we know, God's sovereign will is always carried out. His moral will, on the other hand, is not. Do people commit sexual immorality? Are you not sure about that? Do people commit sex? Absolutely. I mean, it's crazy. Okay? So, obviously, this is not carried out. Alright? But it's God's moral will that they not commit sexual immorality. The term will itself is ambiguous. We need to determine its meaning from the context. Now, the Ten Commandments are God's preceptive or moral will. They command men to do this and to refrain from that, but they state what they don't state what they do state what ought to be done, but they neither state the cause of what is done. God's sovereign or decretive will, however, causes every event. The moral will doesn't cause it. It states this is what you should do, but often it's not done. The scripture commands all men to believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ. But in his sovereign will. He has chosen some to believe and chosen to harden the rest. So let me give you Arminians a verse here. In Acts 13, 48. Paul is preaching the Gospel and it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's interesting, isn't it? Luke threw that in. Who believed? He says, the ones appointed to eternal life. The ones who were not appointed... They didn't believe. So in the New Testament, we find Paul giving the Ephesians general instructions for not living as the world does. He writes this, he says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, What does will here mean? Can we understand God's sovereign will? No. It's secret until it happens. We're to understand the moral will of God, which is revealed in the Bible. So how do you think the term will is being used in our text? According to His will. We are to pray. Are we to pray against according to God's sovereign will? I can't do that. I don't know what His sovereign will is. How can I pray that way? Okay? No. We're to pray for His moral will. Alright? That's how we pray. So this must be telling us we need to pray according to the moral will. Now, since God has revealed His moral will to us in the Bible, 
How can we pray according to the moral will if we are ignorant of the Bible? See, we really can't. You can't pray. When I was a phone counselor at CBN, a lady called and wanted prayer. We were answering prayers, trying to counseling people and comfort them and pray for them or whatever. And I said, what can I pray for you for? She goes, my boyfriend left me and went back to his wife. Would you pray that he would come back to me? And I said, no. She was highly offended. What do you mean? I'm like, uh, so he's married, but you were his girlfriend for a while. Yeah, I said, that's sexual immorality. That's adultery. I'm not going to pray you know, against God's, God's will is that you not be sexually immoral. But you wanted me to pray that this man would leave his wife and come back to her. All right? People, it's important that we read the Word of God. And I'll tell you, it's amazing to me how many Christians are absolutely ignorant of what the Bible has to say. That's because we don't read it. And that's why I'm constantly encouraging you, read the Bible. Every year, read through it cover to cover. Every year, you're going to find new stuff in there. Okay? Now, if you're reading an electronic Bible, you might think they're changing things, but if you read a paper Bible, you'll know it's, it's just, they're not, they haven't added anything, but you just see new things every year. It's exciting. And you'll be reading stuff in the, in the Tanakh, and you'll say, wow, I remember when Paul said that over here in Romans 9. And, you know, just the more time you spend in it, the more familiar you get, the more comfortable you are in the presence of God, understanding who He is and what He wants from you. But we've got to spend time in it, or we'll not know what His will is. As I read it, I learn His moral will. And as I do, I can pray according to that will. And I can be sure that things that are set forth in the Word of God, I'm, I'm praying in the right manner. I'm praying in harmony with biblical truth, because I know biblical truth. There's nothing mechanical or magical about prayer. For it to be effective, the will of the in- intercessor needs to be in line with the will of God. Such conformity of wills is brought about only as the believer abides in Christ. See, the key to answer prayer is being so close in fellowship with God that we're asking for things that are on His heart. Because we know the will of God. We know God's heart because we're spending time in the Word of God. In other words, we take up His agenda with our prayers. It's not, I want this and I want that. The spirit of true prayer is, Thy will be done. Let me give you a definition of prayer that really helps me in my prayer life. You know, sometimes we get caught up in our circumstances and we begin to question the point of prayer. I mean, sometimes we say, what's the point of praying God doesn't seem to answer my prayers anyway? You ever been there? You ever felt like that? Here's why you should pray. No matter how you feel, no matter if you feel like you're getting nothing accomplished, Here's why you should pray, okay? Because prayer is a declaration of our dependence. People, every time I pray, every time you pray, we're saying this, God, I need you. Or we're saying, God, thank you for helping me. We ask God's forgiveness because we know we're dependent upon Him to forgive us. We thank Him in prayer because we know that whatever we has, whatever we have comes from His hand. We petition Him because only He can give us what we need. We know that God resists the proud, 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, but gives grace to the humble. 
And prayer is humility in action. The proud person says, I don't need you. I got this. I'll take care of this. The humble person says, Lord, I really need some help here. I don't have this at all. And Can you do anything? I'll be glad to... Anything you give me, Lord. They're saying, God, I can't do this, so I come to you acknowledging my need before you. I'm declaring I am dependent upon you. You know, in our country, we're big on independence. But you don't want independence from God. You want dependence. You want to be dependent upon Him for everything. And that's why if your prayer life is just saying thanks for something, it's, it's recognized, God, this is from you. Thank you. Or every time I ask for something, God, I, I need some help here. I can't do this. And we need to be praying a lot for wisdom, for guidance, for direction. You know, in life, that we do the things that would bring glory to Him. There's nothing, nothing in our Christian experience in which we manifest our dependence on God, thus glorifying Him more than prayer. So it's not just about, well, I'm not getting my prayers answered. Yeah, but every time you pray, you're telling God, God, I need you. And listen, that verse in 1 Peter 5.5, God resists the proud. That's powerful in the Greek. The word resist there has the idea of putting on battle array. Okay? You want to fight God? You want to go to battle with God? He goes to battle against the proud. But, He gives grace to the humble. That's amazing, people. We glorify God by our prayer. We ask God to do for us through Christ what we can't do for ourselves. Prayer is an open admission that without God... We can do nothing. That's what Yeshua said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And prayer is the running away from ourselves towards God in confidence that He's going to provide exactly what we need. Prayer humbles us as needy. It exalts God as wealthy. So prayer is a declaration of our dependence. And if this is true, then we must admit that prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency. Think about that one for a while. Okay, you go through the day, you didn't pray that day at all. You didn't spend any time with the Lord, you didn't communicate. So basically you're saying, God, I need you today. To not pray is to say, Yahweh, I don't need you. Any of you willing to say to Yahweh, I don't need you today, I got this. I'll take care of it. You just mind your own business and stay up there in heaven and leave me alone. Anybody want to say that? You know, sad thing is, we don't have to. Sometimes we just say it by our actions. Like I said, if life is going just the way we want it to, it seems like our prayer life really suffers. You know, because we're not, God, I need, I need, I need, I need. You know, oh, I'm good. I got this. You know? But when life gets a little rough, then we're like, God, uh, I could use some help down here. Prayerlessness. If you could just grab that thought is a declaration of self-sufficiency. Do you want to declare to God that you are self-sufficient? I don't think any Christian wants to say that, okay? Now think about this for a moment. God's will is that we, His creatures, ask Him for things. It's the declaration of our dependence. To not do it is to declare our sufficient. And here's, what, here's what's really cool about this. It's not just God's will that we pray. It's His delight. Okay, look at this. Proverbs 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable.
to Yahweh. In other words, you know, wicked people try to appease God by doing certain things. That God doesn't, he's not pleased in that. But watch, the prayer of the upright is his delight. What? I'm asking him for something and he delights in that? Yes. He delights in our prayer. He loves to be asked for things. Isaiah tells us that God hears the prayers of his people and he responds to them. Before they call, he says, I will answer. And while they're yet speaking, I will hear. In fact, in Isaiah, he tells us that he takes special steps to see that he is constantly beseeched. Isaiah 62, 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put Yahweh in remembrance, take no rest. And give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So God loves being asked for things so much that He appoints people to give Him no rest, but to remind Him never to be silent. Remind Him of what? Remind Him of His promises. Remind Him of His goodness. Remind Him of His mercy. Of His love to His people. And you might be thinking, why do I need to remind God? Surely He knows that, right? He does know it. But when you remind Him, guess who else you're reminding? Yourself. Okay, We're reminding ourselves. We're remembering who He is. And you pray. You're recounting His promises. You're reminding yourself of who this God is that you pray to. You're quoting His promises back to Him because it builds your faith in God. It shows you that God wants to do something. This tells us that God, the Creator of the universe who holds our life in His hands and rules the world, is the kind of God who loves to be asked for things. Why does God not only will that we ask Him for things, but delight in it and take steps to see that it happens? What's behind this idea of God delighting in Him in us asking for things? What attribute of God causes Him to delight in our asking? It's His love. Because what does love do? It gives. He said, for God so loved that He sat back in heaven and had a warm, tingly feeling. No, He loved and He gave. His only begotten Son. It's God's nature to be a giver. Romans 11, 35 and 36 says, Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him all things to Him be glory forever. Amen. God is self-sufficient. He is the source of all things. But it says here, for from Him are all things. Everything comes from Him. They originated from Him. This all-sufficient God who is the source of all things delights to give. Acts 17.25 Nor is He served by human hands as though He needs anything. He doesn't need anything since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is love and so He gives. So God loves to give. And the last phrase in verse 36 of Romans says, To Him be glory forever. God is glorified as the source of all things so God ordains prayer because he wants, to, we, he wants us to see Him as the glorious, self-sufficient source of everything that we have. And then we glorify Him for His answer prayer. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. See, I would say the opposite of that. I'm like, if you don't talk to me most of the time, don't even call me when you have a problem. But God says, call me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. 
He answers our call for help so that when we get rescued, He gets the glory. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in My name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ask for things in My name. Why? So the Father will be glorified. So God wills that we pray. He wills that we ask Him for things. And not just wills it, He delights in it because it comes from the very nature of who He is. He's love. He's a giver. Why is He a giver? Because He's utterly self-sufficient and He delights to overflow and show us His glorious fullness, His strength, and His wisdom. And that He will give us whatever we need. He loves to show the fullness of His grace and meeting the needs of the humble, dependent, praying people because it magnifies His riches. So prayer, people, is, is not a small thing. It's not some marginal thing. To ignore it is, again, to declare your independence. It's not some incidental thing in the Christian life. Prayer gives honor and glory to God as the source of all things. From Genesis to Revelation, we find believers praying to the Lord. Abraham prayed, Joseph, David, Daniel. They offer examples of believers bringing needs and praises before the Lord. They did so consistently, even if it meant personal peril. They told Daniel, you can't pray anymore, you get thrown in a lion's den. What did he do? Pray. Open his window and pray. I want to make sure you guys can see that I'm praying here. <laughs> okay, and he wasn't trying to be obstinate, it's just what he did. And he kept doing what he did. The government said, you can't do it. And Daniel did it. Churches, the, God, the government said, you can't do it. And Daniel did it. And that's how we're supposed to do Do it. Okay? doesn't matter what the government says. The government's not in charge of the church. It's not their responsibility. MacArthur's still in a legal battle. You know, but right now, the Supreme Court of California has said, you can meet. And so they're meeting, and they're singing, and they're, you know, he's battling with them, and they're fighting like crazy. But you know, I pray that other churches will get on board with this, people. We need to all work together and get back to doing what we're supposed to be doing. Well, this people praying is the same thing we see in the New Testament. We see that our Lord gave the priority of prayer. Prayer was important to Him. We've, you know, he, I mean, whenever He made some decisions, He spent time in prayer for us. You're like, He's God and He's praying. He was a man. He, he was in, in His humanity. He reached out for the Lord for guidance. As we go through the book of Acts, we see the early believers praying privately and corporately. Paul's epistles are filled with examples of his own prayers, demonstrating that he gave a priority to, to this spiritual discipline. Prayer is not optional for God's children. It is absolutely essential. Because if you don't pray, you're not living by faith. Because when you pray, you're depending upon God. You're depending upon Him. You're, you're in faith reaching out to Him. If you don't pray, you're trusting yourself. That's not a good place to be at all. Throughout the New Testament, Man, I totally got lost here. We, throughout the New Testament, we see, again, exhortations to pray. We see exhortations to pray devotionally, dependently. In Colossians here, 4.2, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So he tells the Colossians, continue steadfastly in prayer. And these words, continue steadfastly, are from the Greek, Proskertereo, and it meant to be strong towards, to endure, persevere in. Persevere in. It came to mean adhere to, persist in, continue to do something with intense effort 
with the possible implication of despite difficulty. The present tense of proskertereo further emphasizes the idea of persistence of prayer. We just keep doing it. Paul's instruction then go beyond the simple idea of praying when circumstances are just right for you. The Greek word occurs six times in the New Testament in relation to prayer. Luke notes that following Yeshua's departure into heaven, the group of believers got together in Acts 1.14 and it says, and these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. It was a devotion for them together with the women and Mary and the mother of Yeshua and His brothers. There's about 120 of them and they prayed together for about 10 days. After Peter's sermon at Pentecost and the conversion of 3,000 people, Luke describes their life together like this. And they devoted themselves. This is a strong word, this devotion here. To the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry. The apostles said they didn't want to be pulled away from that. Romans 12, uh, 12 says, Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. In Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer, supplication to the end, keep alert with all perseverance. There again, the idea of continuing, being devoted to it, staying at it. What does it mean? It means you pray often and you pray regularly. It's not an infrequent something you hit and miss at. Being devoted to prayer means that you're not haphazard and you're not forgetful. It means you take steps to see that it's, it's part of your regular life. Something like eating and sleeping. And if you just don't have things to pray for, call me. I'll give you a list. Okay? It's vital to the believer's spiritual health. It's a life priority. It connects me with God. It connects me with His provision for my life. The great preacher Robert Murray McShane once wrote this, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. That's a powerful statement, okay? Because when you're on your knees before God, it's just, you know, no pretense, no, just you and God. You know, sometimes we allow our theological convictions to become excuses for not praying. You know, well, God is sovereign, and God's going to do what He's going to do, so what's the point of prayer? And that's, I think, an unfortunate position to take. J.I. Packer explains that there is no conflict between God's sovereign foreordination and the effectiveness of prayer in the believer's life. He writes this, God foreordains the means as well as the end. And our prayer is foreordained as the means whereby He brings His sovereign will to pass. So, you know, God does use means to accomplish His purposes and he is saying here that the, one of the means that God uses is the prayers of His people. Along the same line, R.L. Dabney has written this, God does not command it because He needs to be informed about our wants. You get that, right? Oh, God, you're praying God's. I didn't know that. Thank you. No, you're not. <laughs> or He may willing to help. He commands it because He has seen fit to ordain it as the appointed means for reception of His blessings. You know, how many of us understand how prayer can work when God is sovereign? You know, when you start thinking about it, you're like, ah, I just don't, I don't know how this all works out. But yet, 
Hopefully we still pray. You know, we can't change God's purposes. And if our prayers could shape God's policy, then the Most High would be subordinate to the will of man. That is a terrifying thought, okay? We know that we're commanded to pray, but because we don't understand how prayer can work when God is sovereign, we disobey the command. That's kind of foolish. Well, I don't understand it, so I'm not going to do it. No, it's obedience. You do what He told you to do. All right? And if you're struggling in your prayer life, I think that the best way to come before God in fervent prayer is to understand that prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency. That bottom line, people, you're wrestling with prayer, just understand you've got to go to Him to tell Him how much you need Him. Whatever the situation, I don't care how good your life is, I don't care how many things you have that you think you need, I don't care how perfect it is, you need God for the next breath. You are dependent on Him whether you realize it or not. We are all very dependent upon Him. To not pray is to declare, I don't need you. Next time tonight when you end of the day and you're getting in bed, just remind God, I got this, I don't need you. <laughs> I mean, I don't think any of us would ever do that, but again, we say it by our actions. We get up, we go through the day, we get in bed, we go to sleep, and God wasn't in the day. We didn't read, we didn't pray, we didn't, you know, it was just a busy day. It's a wasted day. No communication. All right. People, to me, this, this thought here, that prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency, this transformed my prayer life. Because it, it helped me see that if you're not praying, it's just because you're too proud. You just don't think you need them. Now, I didn't want to be there, okay? So it's, it's very, I think, life-transforming. But next week, we're going to see that John's general statements about prayer in verses 14 to 15 that we look at today provide the rationale and the basis for some particular requests he's going to give in these verses, next week we'll look at these. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. That's prayer. All right, so he went from talking about prayer. Now I'm going to give you some specifics on prayer. Ask if you see this, and God will give him life. What? Yeah, you pray and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. He says, there is sin that leads to death, I do not say that you should pray for that. Okay, you don't, don't worry. If, if the sin leads to death, don't worry about praying for it. Okay? And all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that leads to death. So he's talking here in the context about praying for other believers and their spiritual life. This is, this is the importance of prayer to John, all right? This whole, this whole epistle about fellowship, about communion with God, And now he's talking about the community and he goes, listen, if you see someone sinning, pray for them. Unless they've committed a sin and a death. Then don't worry about it. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Uh, Father, I think it's clear from your word the importance of prayer. And I think all of us really realize it is important, but sometimes it's just so neglected. Father, forgive us. Help us, Lord, to realize that we don't want to make declarations to you of our independence. We are very dependent upon you for everything that happens in our life, for every breath that we take, for every beat of our heart. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way that that dependence 
is made clear to those around us and clear to you. Lord, thank you for your eternal patience with us and your love for us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Yes, and I kind of wanted to throw that in today, but I neglected to. Um, part of our prayer life, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is imprecatory prayers. Praying for judgment to fall on evil people. And, you know, believers have a hard time with that, and I'm not really sure why. You know, I mean, God is a God of justice, and we need to pray for justice to be done. I mean, I, I'll tell you, to be honest, I'm specifically praying that God would kill some people. Okay, because they're they're child killers. They're just you know they're godless people that are in power, and it's just you know it's horrible. And God needs to, or at least I want God to remove them <laughs> and put some just righteous people in in power. David, uh, just the thought I was having as you were talking about um, God's sovereignty and why we should pray. Um, thought about you know, how much the Apostle Paul taught on God's sovereignty and that we know that he prayed. So he understood God's sovereignty probably better than any of us. Well, boy, that's that's for sure. There's no doubt that you know when you study the sovereignty of God, you want to go to Paul's teaching because he's so strong on it, but he's right. He prayed. So it didn't, he somehow, maybe he read Piper's stuff. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't have a conflict in his own mind. Understand? We do at sometimes, you know, but it doesn't need to be there. All right. Someone texts me. My father's house should be a house of prayer, but yeah, but <laughs> it's become anything but, you know. And that's that's true, and that's sad because, you know, so many things take the place. That's all I got, I guess, from online. He said, prayer is not a subject that we haven't heard about before, we haven't talked about before. I think it's something we could talk about a lot more because I just think we're, you know, we're missing it. And that's why we recently made some changes and, you know, David now is going to start every service by praying, you know, that, I mean, that God's will would be done here, that we would be able to communicate the truth in a way that um, is clear, people can understand it, and then uh, we as people would, would hear the word of God and be attentive to it and submit to it and, you know, allow him to work in our lives. Gary? Um, it occurred to me that God's sovereign and I'm still commanded to pray. But if I don't pray, I don't, I don't know that he's answered my prayer. Well, that's very true, you know. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to get what you didn't ask for, right? Anthony has a question. Anthony? So, uh, so even if in, in our prayer life and our devotion, we pray to God for certain things, uh, even for loved ones, uh, and even though we know our loved ones are, are safe, or, you know, crucial, or, you know, uh, I mean, uh, so my question is, uh, <clears throat> even if we ask for a certain thing, it's still his timing pretty much because, uh, for instance, if I say, if 
Father, God, please uh, pray for my daughter because she's struggling with this or that, you know. Uh, and, and I know she's saved because she's my daughter. I mean, as far as I know, she gave her life to Christ and she believed in Christ and stuff. So, but, uh, and a certain time thing is coming up soon for her, right, as far as what she's sharing with me. So even if it doesn't come in that specific time frame, it's still his timing, or should we say it's not his will to? Well, that's the thing. We don't know. We can right. pray for things, and God can say, I'm going to do that later. Okay, yeah. I'm going to do that later. Yeah. We don't know. You know, you can pray for people for their salvation for years and years, and all of a sudden they become a Christian. You know, we don't know. You know, I know someone that prayed for God's will to, to escape the cross. But he never, then he said, but nevertheless, not my will. In other words, Lord, I'd like to not go this route, okay? If it's possible, remove this. But nevertheless, not my... So we all, we're there. We pray for things, but that's how we have to pray. God, not my will. Let your perfect will be done, okay? Because, you know, if we got everything we wanted, it'd be a mess. <laughs> We'd be a mess. God knows better than us what we need. And a lot of times when we look back, we can see things that happened and say, yeah, that is definitely... I'm glad I didn't get what I prayed for. Right. You know, there's that country song, I thank God for unanswered prayer. Mm-hmm. Ever heard that? Good song, because a lot of times you pray for things now, you're like, wow, I'm glad I didn't get that, you know? That would have not been good. I saw this uh, meme uh, recently. It said this, Prayer for the Removal of the Wicked. That's its title, and it says this, Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that all willful workers of wickedness be removed from positions of power prominence and prestige open the eyes of those being deceived and place people who stand for your righteous cause in the high places of government and influence amen i think that should be a prayer anyone could pray okay i'm praying god would kill them and this is just praying that god would remove them you know yeah i mean mean, you know and again i just they're evil people they're violating the moral will of God constantly. This whole idea of killing babies is, you know, it's something that needs to stop. And it's not going to unless we get rid of some of these leaders. Okay? Anybody else? We done? Say that first line ten times fast. Do what? Say that first line ten times fast. Willful workers of wickedness. Yes. The willful workers of wickedness be removed from positions of power, prominence, and prestige. When the righteous rule, the people rejoice. You know? So that's there's a prayer we could have right there. Pray for our government. Pray for our leader. Pray for our president. Um, man, alive. I don't know how in the world a man who's a billionaire decides to take a job where everybody in the world will hate him. <laughs> you know? For nothing. I don't know how he gets up in the morning. I really don't. Uh, but I pray for him constantly, man. I'm like, Lord, strengthen this man. Uh, Kathy was reading me yesterday some things she got from one of her friends. says, if you don't like Trump, you don't like him because, and it started listing what he's done in the last four years. I swear she was talking for 20 minutes, you know, and it was just a small thing, a small portion of what he had really accomplished. One of his number one accomplishments, though, is he's stopping child trafficking. Every day I see something on the news. You know, not the mainstream media, about child traffickers being arrested, about people being stopped, about things happening. That's one of the purposes of the wall. It's stopping the child trafficking. So that, that is a huge thing in this country, people, and around the world. And again, if, we, if the children are precious, 
then we stop doing abortions and we stop this child trafficking nonsense. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, so, you know, like, the, I don't know where in the Bible, but I maybe can specifically say what chapter and verse, but when this individual came to Yeshua, said, what can I do to uh, uh, follow you, come, whatever, and then he said, sell everything you have. Right. And whether he was the richest man in the world then or whatever and during that time, I guess the point is, you know, whatever you have, you know, the assets you have, you know, are you willing to just, you know, just get rid of that and follow me and, and, and do my righteous ways? Or, and, you know, and I guess at the end, the guy just walked away. Well, the guy walked away. And if you notice in that story, the Lord never really gave him the gospel because he came to him and he says, uh, what, what do I have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? And he says, well, you know, you know, the commandments. In other words, you, you're a Jew. You know the commandments, right? What did the guy say about the commandments? <laughs> All these have I done from my youth up. In other words, I got this. And the Lord just went on because if you don't see you're lost, if you don't see you have a need, if you don't see you're a sinner, the gospel, you're not, the gospel will bounce right off you because this guy thought he had it all together. I'm not a sinner. If you're not a sinner, you can't get saved. Okay, so that's the first point. So the Lord, you know, said, well, okay, then we'll move on here because you got it all together. All these have I kept from my youth up. I'm like, that's the height of arrogance. 